chaos, the economic chaos, the social problems, and of course the great religious diversity. We're so grateful to be not only acquainted with, but to have intimate knowledge with the author of truth, with the divine maker, the one in whose image we have been created. Oh, Father, it's not a source of pride for us, but a source of great thanksgiving that we should know the truth and that that truth should set us free. Oh, Lord, I pray that as we walk each day with you, we will not only have thankful hearts, but we will seek to share that truth through the lives we live with those around us who are walking in darkness. Lord, I pray that your truth in the passage that we look at this morning will be clear to us. Certainly, we can never probe to the very uh, bottom of the truth provided in Scripture, but we know it is a deep mine out of which come many wonderful jewels for us each and every day. And so teach us, Lord, we pray from your word this day, and minister to each of our hearts according to our spiritual, intellectual, emotional, and physical needs. In Christ's name, amen. Again, looking at Genesis chapter 9, I'd like to read from verse 18 through the end of the chapter. Genesis chapter 9, beginning at verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. And these were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. I guess we could say that was a ripe old age. <laughs> I always try to put that in our, our modern framework and think about, you know, that would be the year 1042 that he would have been born, <laughs> which would have been before the Normans invaded England, <laughs> uh, you know, 200 years before the Magna Carta. Uh, so many different events that uh, have transpired. It's just incredible to think about. Now, obviously, in the time in which he lived, lived all those events didn't transpire in, in their uh, intensity, their enormity, the long-lasting impact, but certainly there were many events which transpired that were important during the life of this man, Noah. Now, last week we focused in on the first few verses of this particular passage. The Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives came out of the ark. It's very interesting to think about this, realizing that God intervened here somehow in some way because 
There is no record here of anybody, any child being born to Shem, Ham, and Japheth before the exit from the ark. Now, obviously, uh, in those days, that would have required God's intervention because uh, birth control, as we think of it, at least, uh, was basically unknown, apparently. So God had a purpose in all of this, in bringing only eight off the ark. And the constant reference to eight seems clearly to indicate there were no children yet born uh, to any of the three sons and daughters-in-law before the exit from the ark. We noted that in the first verse of this passage, that is verse 18, that it only mentions one grandson, Canaan. And that is because Canaan plays a role, as we noticed in the last few verses of this passage, that is really quite significant. Last week we talked a little bit about Noah's deviation from what he knew to be right here. Uh, growing a vineyard was not wrong. But in the process of becoming drunk and uncovering himself in the tent, he acted, as we noted, in the typical style of a pagan. Here was a man who, who provided, it, it, or, that is, who was the great spiritual giant of those last days uh, before the flood, who was the preacher of righteousness, who was the one who was an example to all. And yet, here he was, falling greatly. And again, that should remind us of the fact that all of us are capable of falling, that our flesh is strong. We have never, none of us have achieved sinlessness in this life, even though there are certain denominations that try to teach that you can become sinless, but that just simply is not what the, teacher, the, the Scripture teaches, teaches us. It's not an excuse, of course, to say, well, you know, I can't help it, so I, I'm going to go and do it. But it helps us to know that we have no right to be arrogant or proud and to say, oh, you're such a jerk. How could you possibly do such a horrible thing when we, too, can fall as greatly as someone else? And, and even those in, in Christian leadership have uh, become fools in many ways, as Noah was in this account. Noah awoke from his drunken stupor, and you can be sure he was mortified when he discovered the condition he was in and, and what had happened to him. And he was even more chagrined and shocked when he discovered what happened as far as Ham was concerned, and of course, thankful for the action of the other two boys. Ham had clearly demonstrated a heart of disrespect for his father, a heart of rebellion, and of course, a heart of unbelief. Now, certainly Noah knew something of the character of his son Ham before this event took place. And maybe it wasn't a shock to him. Uh, maybe it was something that uh, could fit in with what he knew of the character of his son. But certainly that it should display itself so openly I'm sure was heartrending for Noah. This breach of honor inspired Noah to give the prophecy that we read in verses 25, 26, and 27. Now, I think it's very important for us to realize that those three verses are in the inspired Word of God. And there is nothing to indicate that these are to be looked upon in a negative way. 
You know, there's another passage in the Psalms which says uh, that there is no God. And I've heard people quote that straight out as if that were a positive statement made by Scripture, that there is no God without the context, you know, where it says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. makes a big difference if you include the context or not, you know. But there's nothing here in the context to indicate that this is simply uh, Noah, Noah spouting something off out of his anger. It, it seems to be part of, of God's clear uh, prophecy through this man, that Noah was given a glimpse of the future by God himself, and therefore he was able to make this prophecy concerning his sons, their descendants, and the nations that would derive from them. Now, if you study the uh, various commentaries, you're going to find all kinds of interesting interpretations of what all that meant. And personally, I have a hard time trying to nail it down to a specific event and say, well, this prophecy means exactly this which happened in this year. It's sort of like looking at end times prophecy and saying that, well, this, this passage from Revelation, we can interpret it as, as having happened at this moment in time, or it's going to mean that this event's going to happen at this moment in time. I think these statements are broad, and I, I think they refer to tendencies and movements through history that aren't always easily identifiable with a specific historical event, although that event may be part of the broader picture. I'll refer more to that in a few minutes. But I think it's important to notice several things about this particular passage. First of all, Noah prophesied of the curse that would be upon Canaan. Canaan was believed to be the youngest son of Noah's youngest son, Ham. It's important for us to realize that this curse is not a hex placed by Noah upon Canaan. He didn't go, oh, I'm going to put this curse on you. you know. No, that's not at all the way we need to understand this. Because first of all, he had no right to put a curse upon his grandson for what his son had done. You know, the scripture teaches that, for example, the child is not to be punished for the sin of the father. But there are certain passages in Scripture which do indicate that down through the generations, trends and characteristics and, uh, uh, you know, in the sense of being open to demonic influence tends to carry it down from generation to generation. And this certainly seems to be what this curse is all about. Noah has been given insight by God that through Canaan, this, this rebelliousness that was in the father Ham would most openly manifest itself through the centuries that would follow and in the line of Cain. And so the line of Cain would be cursed in the sense that it had inherited from Ham, probably somewhat genetically, but mostly spiritually, this tendency to be in rebellion against truth and in rebellion against God. There are a lot of things we don't understand uh, today about human nature, and a, a lot more is being understood genetically than used to be understood, but I believe that it's possible for spiritual traits to be inherited too, and spiritual tendencies to be passed down from one generation to the, to the other. And I don't think it's only because of the example of the parents. I think there is something inside that, that is carried on down too, sort of like the tendency to alcoholism, which probably has, of course, some physical genetic links. 
but uh, that, that this goes down from generation to generation. And it's something, it can be broken. But without the direct intervention of God and without the person seeking God in this, this, this tendency goes on down from one generation uh, to the next, it seems. And this seems to be particularly borne out in the line of Canaan. Now, that's not to say that the other lines of Ham weren't also deviant from the truth and that there wasn't a tremendous amount of evil that came through them, but it seems to be most specific in the line of Cain, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the, the line of Israel as uh, you study it through the, through the Old Testament. If you look at the Canaanites, now we're not going to take time to go studying the Canaanites at this point, but the descendants of Cain traditionally are thought of as being the Canaanites. And there were many different tribal groups within that broader umbrella of Canaanite. And of course, we, we think of the Hivite, and, and we think of the certain branches of the Amorites, and, and of course, we think of the Phoenicians and others, which are somehow linked together with this Canaanite tradition. And, and we know that God specifically spoke to his people that they were not to have anything to do with the Canaanites in their lifestyle, their society, their culture, their religion, or anything else. In fact, they were to be annihilated. When Joshua entered the land, the order was destroy them completely. And sometimes we have a hard time with that, don't we? How could God order the genocide of, of a whole people? But we have to understand that God views things differently than we do. God sees the, the, the beginning and the end. And God knows that this people will be a, a cancer in the midst of his people and that they need to be annihilated. They need to be removed, just as a doctor sometimes has to remove a significant part of our body if we're invaded with cancer to try to preserve the body. And so this Canaanite cancer would ultimately have to be eliminated. It wouldn't be, but that would be the command that God would give to Joshua and his followers because they developed uh, heinous practices. Uh, they developed uh, cultic prostitution of, of every vile kind you can think of today. I mean, the people in San Francisco have no corner uh, on the things that were practiced by the ancient, Can uh, you know, compared to the things that were practiced by the ancient Canaanites, all having to do with the worship of their gods. And of course, we know that human sacrifice was part of Canaanite religion. Taking a small child, an infant that's six months old, and tossing that infant into the flaming arms of a god in order to appease that god and to preserve themselves from the, from the attack of an enemy or whatever it might be. This, you know, you know, if you've studied the history of the Mediterranean world, you know that Carthage and the great Carthaginian society had its roots in Canaan had its roots in the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians simply had migrated through the Mediterranean and, and they had established Carthage. And when Carthage was attacked by the Romans uh, in 200 years before Christ, all of the wealthy in the city were forced to bring their youngest child and to toss this child into the flaming arms of this god to appease him to, so that the Romans would be driven away. It did no good, of course. The Romans ultimately destroyed the city of Carthage. And God allowed that, not because the Romans were more spiritual uh, by any means. But it's interesting to think that had not Carthage been destroyed by Rome, 
what would have been the history of God's bringing his son into the world because God's son was born into the world of Rome. Now, Rome was pagan, but there was an openness there and, and an opportunity for, for God to work. Now, God can do anything. You know, we, we can't deny that. But God chose not to work through a world dominated by Carthaginians and Phoenicians, which could have happened because Hannibal was at the walls of Rome and could have taken the city had he known how weak the city was, but he didn't take the city because he didn't know how weak the city was, and Hannibal was ultimately destroyed. But had Rome fallen and the whole Italian peninsula come under Phoenician domination and, and, and the vile worship of Baal or Baal uh, had spread further, uh, who knows what difference it would have made in history. To me, that's one of the great turning points of history when Hannibal failed before the walls of Rome. Another uh, thing to note here uh, is that the Scripture says that Canaan would be a servant of servants. Now, many have interpreted this word here, Ebed, which is translated servant, as slave. Now, it's not that it cannot be interpreted as slave, but often it's interpreted as servant, and I think really that's the proper interpretation of the term here, even as you find it in the American the New American Standard Version that I read to you this morning. It's interpreted as servant, not as slave. Now, you don't need to turn to it, but the same word is used in Isaiah 53, famous passage, of course, in uh, verse 11 where it says, And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my Abed, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquity. Uh, certainly, we don't uh, translate that passage uh, as slave. Jesus Christ was no one's slave. He was not the slave of the human race. He was not God's slave, God's son. And he came to serve, to be a servant. And, of course, he taught us about servanthood. The one who would be the, uh, the ruler must, first of all, be the servant and learn how to serve, even as Jesus demonstrated when he washed their feet. So, thinking of it in that sense, we have to recognize that Canaan was not cursed here to be a slave. And this is going to be important for us to think about, because prior to the Civil War in the United States, when slavery still existed in this country, there were many who called themselves Christians who justified the position of slave, of possessing slaves, on the basis of this passage of Scripture. God cursed Ham, and the descendants of Ham, by God's curse, were to be slaves. Therefore, it's right for us to have slaves because that's God's curse upon them. And many of them who who, who claimed to be godly people who attended church every Sunday held this to be legitimate based on their misinterpretation, of course, of what God's Word says here. First of all, I think it's important for us to note that uh, as, as we read on here, Canaan was to be a servant of servants. That's really, for example, what the pastor of a church is to be. The pastor of the church is to be a servant of servants. 
We're all to be servants. Who are we to serve? Well, first of all, we should serve God, right? And then we should serve one another. Now, that flies in the face of our society in which we live. Our society does not teach us that we ought to serve one another, but we ought to, of course, arrogate ourselves above one another to, uh, you know, prove to everybody that we are superior in some way or another. And it's a natural tendency within, you know, each individual to have uh, a measure of arrogance. But uh, Canaan was to be a servant of servants, not meaning slave, but a servant of servants. Now, how can that be? Well, first of all, there were historical events which brought this about. For example, when Joshua led the children of Israel into Canaan, they conquered all of the Canaanites, and they were supposed to destroy them, but they didn't destroy them all because, you remember the story, Joshua made a treaty with uh, uh, those from um, Gibeon, the Hivites, and uh, they said, oh, we came from way, way, way far away, and we've just come because we've heard how great you are, and we want to make a treaty. And now if Joshua would have thought about this, if they're from so far away, why are they so concerned about making a treaty with us? But he was flattered. And so he went ahead and made the treaty and found out, of course, they were the next people they were supposed to conquer. And, and so they made the treaty. God said, well, look, you've made the treaty. You've got to abide by the treaty, but they must be made your servants. They're to be your wood choppers and your water carriers. And so here the Canaanites were to become servants of the Shemites, the, the descendants of Shem, the, the Israelites. And so this is a partial fulfillment, certainly, of this. I think it's broader than this. Later on, of course, the land of the Canaanites would be conquered by the Persians, be conquered by the Greeks under Alexander the Great, would be conquered by the Romans. And so the Canaanite peoples would be constantly ruled by others. And in that sense, they became a servant to the Japhethites too because the Persians and the Greeks and the uh, Romans were all descendants of Japheth if we understand the uh, table of nations correctly. And so they did become servants of the Shemites and of the Japhethites. In, in some instances, yes, slaves, but, but as people's servants in, the, in that sense of the term. Now, certainly they didn't all acknowledge the fact that to be a servant of servants meant that they were to be servants of those who serve God. But we can see it as that. And those who truly did follow God were servants of him. Now, I've mentioned this uh, particular book to you before. Um, there's a very interesting book that uh, is a uh, commentary on the book of Genesis called The Genesis Record, written by Henry Morse. And uh, he gives, of course, a kind of a scientific uh, interpretation of the whole book of Genesis. And um, in, in that book, he casts some light, I think, upon this passage and helps us to a little bit more understand maybe some of the background meaning to this uh, prophecy that Noah made here. He points out that God gave mankind three principles, principal areas of duty. Those areas are spiritual, intellectual, and physical. 
Now, first of all, in the spiritual realm, what, what are our duties in the spiritual realm? Well, there are many passages of Scripture we could turn to. For example, uh, God in the very beginning taught that we were to, that is, God's people were to teach men to call upon the name of the Lord. And that happened, first of all, where we here in the days of Seth. And in those days, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And that's, that's one fulfillment of the spiritual duty. Another is, as we read in Habakkuk, to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord. That's a command given to God's people, to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord. And of course, the missionary enterprise today is doing that. And then in doing it, it's, of course, fulfilling specifically Jesus' words in Matthew 28, the so-called Great Commission, where he said that got his followers to go, were to go into all nations and make disciples of all nations, which is really doing what was prophesied there in Habakkuk. And so the spiritual duty of true believers is to make known God in his glory throughout this world by the lives which we live and the words which we speak, the attitudes which we display, by our effort to raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and our grandchildren, and, and, and that the generations might follow along in the spiritual fruit, even as they can follow along in spiritual wickedness, if that's not halted by the intervention of God. A second duty of, of mankind is intellectual. Now, first of all, God told Adam and Eve to subdue the earth. Now, you can't subdue something you don't know. And so, obviously, this requires knowledge of the earth, to, to go out and understand the earth and the environment and, and all that God has created. You know, I, I think that there is absolutely nothing wrong with going out and pursuing understanding of, of how the mountains got here and the rivers and the trees and the animal life and, and human culture and society. All of these things, I think, are worthy pursuits. Anthropology and sociology and psychology and biology and geology and all the other ologies are not something that we as Christians should shun as being, you know, something evil or something that in some way uh, God is not pleased with. I mean, God is the author of knowledge. God is the author of truth. God is the author of wisdom. And as we seek knowledge in these areas, we're doing what God has commanded us to do into the, in the intellectual realm. What we call science, what we call philosophy, those aren't dirty words. They're good words. They're, uh, they're areas where we should pursue knowledge and understanding. There are philosophers, of course, who give us a bunch of bunk. But philosophy is not in itself bad. There are scientists who, who teach a bunch of baloney. But that, of course, doesn't make science bad, does it? Many of the great scientists and philosophers of history have been true believers in Jesus Christ. Now, we have nothing to fear from true science and true philosophy. For example, uh, we do know that there are those things which are false. Let, let me just read a verse that you all know well. I didn't put it on the outline. But in uh, 1 Timothy 6.20, we read this. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called 
gnosis, knowledge. And in the King James, it's, it's translated science. Now, science is the pursuit of knowledge. True science is the pursuit of knowledge. It, it's the pursuit of understanding this physical world in which we live. And, and maybe not just the physical world, but the intellectual realm, the emotional realm too. That which is inside a human being and expresses itself in, uh, you know, often physical manifestations. Uh, these, th there is a false teaching out there, and we're all very much familiar with at least part of it. There is false science. There is false teaching relative to how the world got here. How old is the world? Uh, the evolution of, of life on this planet. When you really trace this down, you discover that it's a very ancient teaching. The idea, quote, of evolution goes way back in time. Uh, it precedes the time of Christ. It goes back hundreds of years into Greek philosophy, and who knows how far beyond that. And, and, and it's false science, because when you think about it, it's, it's, it's com it, there's, a, there's a religious commitment to it. And this seems to be true of all false science and all false philosophy. There's, it's a misinterpretation of reality, and often with, with, with a, a, a vehemence behind it. We will have it this way because we don't want it to be any other way. I think I mentioned to you the, the statement made by Julian Huxley. I can't remember the title of the book. I read it in now. But one of, one of his books, and you know, Julian Huxley was sort of Mr. Evolution. For, for many years, he was the most outstanding exponent of evolution. He was the one who was considered the ultimate advocate of the theory of evolution. And in one of his books, he said, no matter what evidence shows up, I will believe in evolution because I refuse to believe in the other option. Now, that is not science. That's religion. When you say, I will believe this way and I won't believe that way, regardless of what comes along in terms of evidence, that's religion. That's not science. Science is open to truth. Science is willing to modify its position if other information comes along to show that this position is false and this seems to be a better explanation of reality. Now, we're always going to be faced with nothing but interpretations in many areas because you cannot go back and, and, and recreate the past in the sense of geological history or biological history. We can't go back and say, oh, you know, it would be nice, get in a little time machine and flip back about 100,000 years if, you know, if there was anything 100,000 years ago. I don't think there was. But let's say go back even 5,000 years and flip back on a little time machine, walk around with a video camera, you know, and come back with, with uh, reality, supposedly. That, that would be great if you could do it. I, I think that many scientists would find that their theories are really in a cocked hat uh, if you could do that. And, and so many things are happening today to, to show that to be true. And, and things are happening so quickly. I think I mentioned the island of Circe off the south coast of I Iceland. I mean, the thing burst up through the sea in 1963. Uh, this volcanic island just burst up through the sea and within four years, the thing was quiescent, and in that four years, life was already growing on that island. Plants were already growing on this, this barren rock that was recently spewed out of the sea. 
And, and scientists actually were looking at that and they're saying, now how many centuries will it take for life to get a foothold on this barren piece of ground? About two years. <laughs> you know. and, and as they look at things, they find that really there's an acceleration. And they don't want... Uh, I'm, I'm putting this, these words in the, in, the, in the minds of some. Many don't want to see that acceleration because to see that ex acceleration makes the great eons which have been postulated unnecessary. And they don't want to do that because without those eons, you can't have evolution. Evolution cannot happen without vast quantities of time, at least uniformitarian evolution. Now, if you want to go with new new theories that they're really new, but they're, that anybody accepts them as relatively new, that, you know, the chicken lays the egg and out hatches, uh, you know, a lizard or something or vice versa. And then, of course, you don't need a lot of time. You just need a whole lot of gullibility, it seems like to me, <laughs> more than time for that. But, you see, this is, to me, the difference between science and science. True science the Christian has not a thing to fear because it, it never will break down our understanding of who God was, is. It will never cause us to be ashamed of our Lord or his words or of this book. But falsely, science falsely so-called can lead us into all kinds of error. And so it is with, with philosophy. Len has been teaching us in, in our prayer meetings, and, and he was using Colossians for one of the passages. In, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, we see this statement. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceptions. According to what? The tradition of men, according to the elemental, elemental principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. Now, philosophy, there's nothing wrong with philosophy. You know, it, it simply means the love of wisdom, isn't, isn't that true, Len? The love of wisdom, and, and there's no reason for any of us not to love wisdom. In fact, of course, the proverb, Proverbs were told to seek wisdom. But philosophy that is guided by the tradition of men and is the result of the elemental principles of this world, the, the demonic influences in this planet, that's not philosophy. Uh, that is false philosophy. That's interpretations that have nothing to do with reality. It's, it's sort of like the philosopher who comes along and says, God is dead, folks. Well, how does he know God is dead? He never knew God in the first place. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, this is empty philosophy. It's an attempt to create a situation that mollifies one's spirit. And I can go out and live like I want to live if I don't have to be responsible to a personal God who says, hey, this is true and this is the way I want you to walk. If we deny that he exists and we believe that we're just the product of, of uh, unguided evolution and that we're just the top of the evolutionary pyramid, then what difference does it make what we do? Live however we want to live. We're not responsible to anybody. In fact, human law makes no sense when you think about evolution. Do other animals have laws? 
Well, most of the law that rules in the animal world is might makes right, and the strongest prevails. And sometimes that's true within human society, too. But we try to make laws, and we try to have justice. When you think about that, that's, that just doesn't fit with the whole concept of evolution. Such, thing, such a thing should not be the product of evolutionary processes. So many things about humanity should not be the, process, the, the product of, of evolutionary processes. It indicates that a great all-knowing mind has imposed upon the human race these characteristics and, and these beliefs and understandings. It couldn't come from evolution. It's not possible. So man is required, there are certain duties, the spiritual duties, the intellectual duties, and then also physical duties. Mankind was commanded to exercise stewardship over this planet, to labor in order to provide sustenance for the ongoing of the human race, to create out of, out of this planet a sort of a giant garden. And that would have been possible in the pre-fall days. Today, you and I may have a garden, but it's a whole lot of work because everything fights against us and we get our grass just so and some dumb fungus comes along, you know, or some bug comes along and gophers come along and you fight the one and it creates conditions ripe for another and, you know, it's really frustrating after a while and you get rid of the aphids and something else comes along. It's, it's just a giant pain. It requires a lot of work. That's not the way it was in the beginning. Adam and Eve didn't have to face all that. All they had to do was trim the garden. They didn't have to spray it and, you know, uh, put bombs in the ground or anything else to try to take care of the garden. The human race is supposed to physically work to, to provide for its ongoing here on the planet. So these duties are those of mankind. And these three areas of duty, the spiritual, the intellectual, and the physical, more or less, correspond to the tripart nature of mankind, the spirit, the soul, and the body. It would seem that there's no way that we can view Noah's sons other than every one of them obviously inherited and did operate in all three areas. I mean, one wasn't all just a mind and the other all a body and the other all a spirit. I mean, we well know that. And Shem, Ham, and Japheth all function in all three areas. But it seems that each one had one area dominant. In other words, Shem and his descendants seem to be more dominant in the spiritual realm. And Japheth and his descendants more in the intellectual realm. Ham and his descendants more in the physical realm. All three function in all three realms but it seems that one realm was more important to the descendants of each than in the other two. Now Canaan was to be a servant of servants, which means that his line would perform major effort and innovation to provide for the physical needs. In other words, the emphasis would be more on the physical through the line of Ham and specifically through Canaan. Now, week after next, we're going to begin looking at the 10th chapter of Genesis, the so-called Table of Nations. And that's a bit of a 
enigmatic study. There are a lot of things there we don't really understand, but it's interesting and fascinating at the same time. But as you look at that, you discover that the descendants of Shem, for example, were of course the Jews, the Israelis, the Arabs, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, peoples of this nature, and when you think about them now, and you look back at them historically, you'll discover that there was a tremendous emphasis upon what I'll just call religion amongst those peoples. Their gods were very important to them. And of course, from the Arabs have, uh, has been born the great Mohammedan faith, which incorporates a fifth of mankind today. And of course, we can say through the Israelites came both Judaism and Christianity, which incorporates an even larger portion of the human race today. And so major religious systems of the world have come through the Shemites, if you will. The descendants of Japheth included the Indo-European peoples. And they have provided the world with most of the major philosophical systems and contributions in the area of arts and science. That's not to say there have been no contributions of the Hamites or the Shemites. I'm simply saying that it seems that the greater thrust has been through the, the, the descendants of Japheth. I mean, we here in this world are profoundly influenced even today by Greek thinking and Greek philosophy and Greek manners of understanding truth. And of course, that's a descendant of, you know, Javan was a descendant of, of Japheth. Uh, just to mention one. The descendants of Ham included not only the Canaanites, but the Hittites and the Egyptians and the Sumerians and, and numerous other peoples, the, the uh, Native Americans, the peoples who became the Chinese, and all of this are descendants of Ham, it is believed, if we understand the table of nations. And through the ancient world, they have been the leading technologists, particularly the ancient Egyptians and Sumerians. Uh, they brought much of innovation to, to mankind, particularly in the areas of uh, industry and agriculture and, and, of course, warfare. Oh, what would we do without technology in warfare? We've always had to know how better to kill ourselves off. For example, the Hamites, speaking broadly of these people, explored and settled much of the world. I mean, who lived in Africa? Well, the Africans and their descendants of Ham, and uh, they uh, occupied Africa long before the Europeans came or the Semites came. They, they explored clear over and occupied China and Siberia and the New World. Most of the world has been occupied by the descendants of Ham prior to 1500. The Portuguese and the Spanish and the English and the Dutch and the French and, and, and these various peoples began to go out around the world and to explore, but when they arrived there, they found somebody already lived there. When we say Columbus discovered America, we're saying it from a particular point of view, aren't we? I mean, the Indians already knew it was here. <laughs> They'd been living here for a long time. And uh, so, it was no discovery for them. You might say they discovered the Europeans uh, in reverse here. But most of the world, except for Europe and the Western Asian area, was to be ultimately explored, not ultimately, but initially explored and settled by the Hamites. The domestication of most plants and animals occurred through their effort. 
the ancient Egyptians and the ancient Sumerians and their descendants. The New World peoples introduced many areas of technology, mostly in agriculture, uh, to, the, to the world. And of course, you know, they were apparently the descendants of Ham. And, you know, it's kind of interesting when you think about this. You, you trace this historically. I don't know how many of you here are here of Irish descent, but the Irish began to come to America in large numbers uh, in the 1840s and following because of what was known as the Great Potato Famine in Ireland. Now, there wouldn't have been a potato famine in Ireland if it weren't for the potato, right? And the potato was not an old world plant. The potato was a new world plant. The potato was taken from the new world to the old world by the explorers who came over here and they took it back to the old world and then it became critical to the survival of some old world peoples. And, but who developed the potato? Well, the Hamites who lived here in the Americas did in numerous varieties. I, I've forgotten now how many hundreds or thousands of varieties of potatoes there really are. You know, most of us go and we see there's a red potato, there's a white potato, and then there's the russet <laughs> or whatever it is. Uh, and not realizing there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of varieties of, of potatoes. It's like most of us think of a banana as the yellow thing we buy, the chiquita. And not realizing that when you go to the tropics, I mean, there are so many different kind of bananas, from little bitty things to great big giant things, things that are so sweet they make your, your teeth ache, to things that are so flat they taste like wallpaper paste, you know. You know so many things we don't realize until we re travel to other parts of the world. And then in the area of agriculture, I mean architecture, uh, most of the initial architecture was developed by the Hamites. The ancient Egyptians, the ancient Sumerians began to build, the, as far as we know, the, the first big temples and fortifications and things of this nature. And so here we have technology largely developed in the descendants of Ham. Not that the Japhethites and the Shemites didn't also introduce things or work with what the Hamites had developed and further perfect them. Now, in many cases, uh, this would be so. And you and I know that modern Europeans have taken almost every invention and perfected it and gone further with it and, and developed it until, of course, Europe tends to dominate the world today. It, at least it did uh, in the 19th and early part of the 20th century and certainly in technology still does. And, and that, you know, is, is an innovation. But you look at the basic foundation upon which the modern uh, changes are based and it's hemitic in its origin. And spiritually, uh, well, intellectually, uh, European philosophy, uh, technology, and science dominates the world today. Uh, so much of the world is moving to European ways of thinking, uh, especially, of course, in the international community. And in the area of religion, the world is ruled by the Shemites, the Semites, if you will, because the three dominant religions in the world today are Christianity, high, what we call high religions, Christianity, Islam, and to some degree Judaism. Now, if you think about it and you study, for example, take Buddhism or um, Hinduism, which incorporate millions of people, but you look at it and they are nothing more than glorified primitive religions. Um, Hinduism is uh, simply animism gone run amok. 
and uh, you know, Buddhism is simply modified Hinduism. And as you look at these, you discover they are not in any way like the other three major world religions. Christianity, Islam, and Judaism are much more alike one to the other than any of those more primitive religions are to those three. And those more primitive ones are directly Hamitic, whereas your Shemitic faith uh, uh, is that which believes in a single God. Islam believes in one God. Uh, is, of course, uh, false in their theology and their teaching and their understanding and, and the way of living their faith, but nevertheless it's considered a monotheism. And uh, that is a Shemitic contribution, God working through the descendants of Shem. Now the world, however, today is numerically ruled by the descendants of Ham. Three quarters of the population of the world today are apparently descended from Ham. The rest from Shem and Japheth and most of the rest from Japheth. Dominating every continent except North America, for example, and, and Australia. Now I alluded earlier to this particular passage related to Canaan being a servant as used by some to rationalize black slavery in America in the 16th century and beyond. But this passage cannot be used to support black slavery for several reasons. First of all, black Africans are a minority amongst the Hamites. The vast majority of Hamites in the world today are not black Africans. Now, Africa is, is undergoing explosive growth. The continent of Africa, the, the population is, is, is just growing tremendously. But nevertheless, they are a minority amongst the descendants of Ham. Secondly, and, and therefore, of course, uh, it, it, if you say the descendants of Ham are supposed to be slaves, well, the majority of the descendants of Hams are not slaves to anybody, nor have they been. Secondly, Cain is, Canaan is the one specifically mentioned in the verse anyway. And he was the father of the Canaanites, and they're not black. They were not black. It, it's black Africans are not the descendants of Canaan. And those Canaanites who were not killed by the Israelites were made servants. And so the passage is not talking about black Africans at all. And finally, slavery is a worldwide phenomenon. You'll find slavery amongst all peoples. There were, sla there were slaves amongst the Shemites, slaves amongst the Japhethites, as well as amongst the Hamites. And so to attempt to use that passage as a rationalization for black African slavery in this country is ludicrous. It has nothing to do with reality. Verse 26 of this passage makes it clear that Shem had some kind of a personal relationship with God. And probably implicit within this statement, let me uh, read the verse again. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Now God is the God of all peoples. But implied here seems to be that Shem related to that and made him his God. 
And probably within this is the reference to the godly line of people that would be the descendants of Shem, Moses, and David, John the Baptist, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and all the prophets from Elijah to, through Malachi, that this is certainly implied in this statement, this prophecy that Noah is making here. And then in verse 27, where, it's, where uh, it talks about Japheth being enlarged, this is probably not geographical enlargement. It's probably not numerical enlargement. It's probably referring to intellectual enlargement. That Japheth would go on to become the intellectual leader, that is, his descendants would, of the human race. And where it says that he might dwell in the tents of Shem doesn't mean they're going to live together. It was the characteristic Hebrew way or Old Testament way of saying that there would be a degree of friendship between them. To dwell in one another's tents is to indicate that there's some kind of friendship there. Now, historically, we do know that the Shemites and the Japhethites weren't exactly buddy-buddy and that there have been lots of times when major wars have been fought between the Japhethites and the, and the Shemites. But we have to understand that in the area of the exchange of ideas, of religion, and of many, uh, in many other areas, there's been much more closeness between the Japhethites and the Shemites than between either of those and the Hamites. The Hamites have considered both the Shemites and the Japhethites an enemy, and they have had a hard time relating to the Hamites historically also. So it's a matter of relative relationship here it would seem. Until modern times, the Hamites have been very resistant to outside influences by any of the descendants of Shem or the descendants of Japheth. It's only been in the last few centuries that, for example, Christianity and Islam have penetrated the Hamitic world. And of course, we know Islam has penetrated into parts of Africa and across southern Asia, clear over into the Philippine Islands. But we know Christianity has penetrated also throughout most of the world. But prior to this, the Hamitic peoples were resistant to this. For example, when, Mohammedans fo when Muhammad's followers swept into North Africa, they found once they passed Egypt that the most resistance to them came from the Berbers. The Berbers were, uh, were a pagan people, but they wanted nothing to do with the God of Islam. And it wasn't until they were forcefully subdued and forcefully converted that they then became the cutting edge of Islam vis-a-vis -vis Europe. And they passed off into Europe and on almost overwhelmed uh, the French at the Battle of Tours in 732, where Charles Martel, fortunately, I think certainly under the hand of God, although I wouldn't call him necessarily a, a godly person, but stopped, stayed the flood there on the battlefield that day. Finally, we have Noah's epitaph given to us in the last verses of the passage. He lived 350 years after the flood, became the third oldest man on record. Only Methuselah and Jared lived longer and not significantly longer. 19 years in the case of the one and 12 years in the case of the other. What's 19 years or 12 years when you're talking about almost a millennium? Not much. You know, be like knocking a few months off our lives uh, in comparison today. But he lived long enough to see his descendants multiply into the thousands, 
and to see them begin to expand certainly westward into Europe and certainly southward into Asia Minor and probably North Africa and, and who knows where beyond. You just, you know, I just would love to have been able to talk to Noah a few days before he died and say, what do you think about this whole thing now, Noah? Has the world greatly improved from what it was before the flood? Or is it returning to similar conditions? 